Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? I know I'm doing great because I have a better understanding of the role of fire in Midwestern prairie ecosystems, and that's all thanks to my guest today, Dr. Greg Spireas. Greg's been on the podcast before many, many years ago, but he's back today to talk about an incredible research project he's been on that looked at historic fire regimes in the Midwest dating back to the 1600s. There's a lot of cultural context that needs to be factored in here, and it helps people trying to understand how to move forward in this chaotic world that we live in. But I'm going to let Greg do all the talking, so let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Greg Spireas. I hope you enjoy. Right, Dr. Greg Spireas, welcome back. It has been a long time since we've had you on the podcast. So how about you refresh us? Tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Hello, Dr. Matt. May I call you that? <laughs> yeah, totally. Thank you. <laughs> it's a rare case when that happens. It's so It sounds cheesy. Uh, anyway, uh, Greg Spireas is my name. It is I. Um, <laughs> I am a botanist and plant ecologist at the Illinois Natural History Survey housed at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana where I work with rare plant surveys, vegetation surveys, and I also do a little research on the side. You do a lot. And as someone that gets to see sort of your day-to-day a little bit more than most listening to this, uh, I, I don't know how you manage to balance everything that you do, but uh, you seem you seem like you're functioning. You're doing all right. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's not a bad gig. <laughs> So what brought you to becoming a botanist? I mean, are you someone that always liked plants or did you kind of stumble into it later on through, you know, education or hobbies, whatever? I, you know, every time I, I, I hear that question, I inevitably hear from people saying, well, I grew up, you know, going on camping trips and hiking trips or whatever. And I just, you know, I loved that, blah, blah, blah. And that was not my experience. I grew up as a city kid who wanted to be a baseball player for wow. a living. And the only really exposure I had to nature was I would watch these nature documentaries like on PBS or whatever. And I just, you know, I'm, I'm in an apartment with like, you know, three women and <laughs> I'm sharing a room and it's cramped and, you know, urban space. And I'm just like, I want to go to that jungle that I just saw on that show, you know, and whatever. <laughs> and, you know, it's one of these things. This is another something that do a lot of people do say where you're like, I didn't realize you could do that for a living. And it yeah. took me, you know, till I was like 20, whatever years old. So I actually saw, oh, there are people who do that for a living. And I just got a couple of, of good breaks. I had some good mentors. Um, I got lucky and, uh, you know, I wound up going to school and uh, becoming a botanist. Yeah. Nice. Well, I'm going to shout out a, a, a previous colleague of yours, Jared Duquette, that, that said something should come of sort of the social side of what I do in podcasting. And, and what you just said there made me think of like everyone I talk to week to week to week. And, and I think it's actually more of a majority came to botany way later in life, usually through college or an internship or something like that. I think it's actually a rarity when you hear someone that's like, oh, I grew up loving plants. And it would be interesting just to do like go through 300 exod episodes and just get a ratio of how many people discovered it late or always loved plants. Yeah, for sure. That's yeah. So anyone listening that's a social scientist do that because I'm not, <laughs> I don't feel like doing that. <laughs> right, right. And it makes, and it also makes me think like, you know, one of the things that you, you have probably experienced in this academic world 
there's so much of a push towards like getting underserved communities education and exposed to these things. But like in our case, in my case, it was these mentors that I, you know, randomly in school who said, Hey, you should try this, come on this, take this class or something like that. And without that exposure, yeah. like I would have never, ever imagined it was in the realm of possibility or been exposed to some of these things. So, you know, yeah. And it's, it's one of those things that I think it's good to trickle it in all through life. Right. And just have exposure to it wherever you can. But so much of it really does come down to that, like crunch mode. And when you're like, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? Right? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Am I going to make a living? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You just have these moments and then, and yeah, it's, sometimes it's, it's uh, an internship or a volunteer opportunity or just a good mentor that says like, Oh, check this out. And if you're like me, I was always a nature nut, but there was a good chunk of like my teen years, let's say, that I forgot about all external stimuli and focused purely on like being cool. And we'll <laughs> say for whatever reason I wanted to be cool. But today we're talking about you, <laughs> Dr. Spireus of the botanist. Yes, botanist. That's Botanists, right. yes. Uh, so you, you, you're a botanist in a larger sense. You work in a lot of different capacities, as you kind of hinted at, but the reason we got you back on the podcast today is to kind of talk about fire adapted ecosystems and sort of the history of fire adapted ecosystems. So, you know, in thinking about all of the work that you do, the last time you were on, for instance, it was talking about milkweeds and their relation to monarchs, specifically how we kind of utilize space, uh, wild spaces in the Midwest. But you've kind of gone a different direction and kind of looking at more of an ecosystem perspective as it relates to fire. So what, what brought you to fire other than the fact that you live <laughs> in a tall grass prairie ecosystem? Um, it, it's one of the most fundamental things that maintain our habitats, you know, through much of North America, really. And I try to be as much as I can an applied ecologist where I want to study things that will help people to better conserve and restore our habitat, our floras and our faunas. And fire is just a natural like thing, like, you know, what do we know about it? What do we know about its effects? What do we know about its history, both social history and ecological history? And just seeing the amount of trouble that we as ecologists are having in managing our habitats and our lands in as best a way we can to, you know, conserve uh, some of our uh, native flora and fauna that sort of drew me to it. I'm like, we, I can't believe how much we don't know. Like we can do better. We got to do better at understanding, you know, these natural processes that we, we used to have a lot. And now we've in many cases lost. Yeah, that's a really great point. And it's always refreshing to hear someone that is publishing a lot, doing good science, but also doing it in the context of thinking of how can this be applied? How can we learn from this to do better moving into the future? Because sometimes it just kind of stops at how do we get data? And I like to play with data, not to say there's a problem with that, but I'd like to see these camps talking a lot more. And when it comes to fire, I mean, <laughs> look at the media, right? There's no way you can spin it to not think that we have a very problematic view of fires in this world. And unfortunately, what we're exposed to nowadays, or at least most of the general public is catastrophic wildfires and it becomes this issue of nuance which is like one of the worst words in the world right now no one wants to deal in nuance but when you talk about fire in ecology you need nuance because it's not all of these ground sterilizing fires that destroy everything and it'll be decades before anything resembling an ecosystem returns but that's all we end up seeing but a lot of it has to do with our very poor interaction with fire in the landscape over the last century and a half 
Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, that's a great way to put it. Our very, that is a, yeah, that's, that's the perfect title right there. Our very <laughs> poor, you know, uh, foolish relationship with fire over the past century and a half. That's, that sums it up to me perfectly. Yeah. And the lack of subtlety, you know, the lack of nuance, it's gotta be all or, you know, none it's, it's gotta be a uh, ferocious landscape scale, terrible fire versus just Smokey the bear, no fire anywhere ever. You right. know what I mean? So that's a that I think that point is starting to finally get through people's heads in some extent where you say like okay we've been trying this no fire for you know a hundred years and look what the consequences is out west now granted there are a lot of other things that are contributing sure. to what we're seeing out west but like that's not sustainable it's not going to work it's not going to be good for our habitats and it's not going to be good for us yeah it's an ongoing sort of communication side battle right because you start to see trickles of larger institutions, larger outlets starting to talk about this in a more nuanced way, bringing in this idea that, you know, people have been putting fire on the landscape for a very long time and it's been a, a natural process for even longer. Right. And so one of the things that kind of continues to floor me as someone that grew up in the Northeast in the temperate deciduous forests that you just don't really associate wildfires with is just when you look back in the record, regardless of where you're at, there's very few places in the long run that haven't had some sort of historic fire regime. Now, it might not be a frequent one of one to 10 years or so, but they, they've been an occurrence, whether it's natural or anthropogenic on some level. Such a great point. It is so hard for people to make that connection. Like, it kind of doesn't matter where you are around, you know, in our neck of the world. There has always been, I, now granted, there are, you know, again, nuance. There are local, local, you know, little interspersions of areas, depending on what the habitat, maybe you're in like a nice protected cove forest or a really wet swamp, you know, like there's always going to be some exceptions, maybe a certain type of bog that's really wet wouldn't have burned. But other than that, most areas burned and it's, <laughs> and it was, it varied a lot, you know, yeah. it, it varied a lot. There's some people that places that burn maybe every two or three years for who knows how many centuries. And there are other places where maybe it was every 30, 40 years, maybe up in the Northeast, something like that. Yeah. But it's part, it's our ecosystems were birthed in fire. They were maintained in fire. They're healthier with fire, you know, for the most part, that's the reality of it. Yeah. Yeah. And it becomes this issue of trying to understand the landscape uh, as altered as it can be at times. But that's kind of the nuance you were getting at where, yeah, okay, this cove might not have burned, but all of the outcrops around that cove probably did fry at some point or another. Uh, but the key here is is trying to try to tease out that nuance. And and the unfortunate part is, you know, unless you have sort of this oral history of, of communities that have talked about it and understand it for what it is and the management tool that it's been for millennia, uh, a lot of times you're kind of left with, well, who wrote down what and where? And that becomes sort of a challenge for ecologists like you, land managers, especially today, trying to figure out well, what kind of ecosystem was this? Do we have any hope of understanding what it used to be here? And and again, you know, moving into a future dominated by climate change and anthropogenic disturbance on the landscape, like how do we use this in a way not to say we're going back to anything of what it once was, but where do we get smart about the way we use it moving forward? So is that a challenge, I guess, as a botanist and someone that's doing ecological research at the same time? Yeah, I mean, it is very much a challenge. The first place, the absence of, let's say, in my part of the world, in the in the tall grass prairie, you know, forest transition zone of the Midwest, like 
the first place, the lack of data at what the sort of pre-settlement fire scape and fire regime was like. But then even if you had really good at data on that, okay, that was the past. What should be the present of, of uh, what do we want to do? What do we want to accomplish? You know, what's ideal? What's, what's feasible? It's a real challenge, you know? So I, I feel, I almost feel uh, bad for the, pe- the land managers, the people who do on the, ro- on the ground work, the people who at the end of the day have to make the decision of here's at the end of the day, the decision I need to make. I need to decide for this species, you know, how is it going to do with fire? How is the forest going to do? How is the ground layer going to do with fire? How are the animals? Uh, what time of year should I burn? Um, how hot of a burn should it be? I have to worry about the human dimensions. Where's the smoke going to go? You know, just the number of things that I just feel so bad, uh, like how hard it is. And I have such appreciation for people who do this actual on the ground work. It's incredible. The the number of things you need to think about and worry about, like, am I getting this right? You know, is is this useful? Is this appropriate? Right. And it's all about that modern context nowadays uh, for land managers. And I'm, I'm right there with you in the empathy camp. Like I think of my buddy, Jeff Talbert down in Florida that has to deal with not only the fact that what habitat he's working in is some of the little habitat that's left. So when you burn it, what happens to everything living there? It doesn't have a place to go and escape to, you know, it's not hundreds of thousands of acres of pristine intact wilderness. It's, you know, a few hundred acres surrounded by multi-million dollar homes. And that's the other part of it too. He's like, when I light a fire, I always have to worry about, is this going to jump into the giant tourist community where there's millions of dollars and I'm out for everything I own and then some, uh, if something goes wrong. I mean, it is... It, we've kind of created a nightmare scenario in so many ways because you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. If you light the fire, you're reducing the fuel load, but you run the risk of injuring neighboring stuff. But if you don't, then you're building up a fuel load for catastrophic outcomes. <laughs> so it's tough. And and this human element, uh, especially modern human element, just really can't be ignored in that long scheme sort of management policy. Yeah, I don't, you know, if if the, if I had my say in the world, things would potentially <laughs> be a lot different. <laughs> yeah. Um, me both. <laughs> I could think of some examples where people are building right up to the wildland, what we call the wild wildland, you know, whatever forest interface, right? Yeah. And uh, they want that view, they want that, you know, quasi natural look, but they don't want to. They don't want to be bothered by fire, you know. Right. Um, and hey, you know, I want a lot of things that I that I can, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, as my old uh, wilderness philosophy professor used to say, I want to go to space, but I'm in no shape to do that. So sometimes you just got to come to terms with the fact that you can't always get what you want. But I digress. <laughs> <laughs> so with these, it, it, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just thinking about when you're saying that, how, you know, learning to come to terms and learning to have a better relationship fire. I think with this most recent study that we put out, it, it's it was interesting to me to see the different stages that were pretty apparent with what was going on pre-settlement contact by Europeans, you know, big time, you know, uh, settlement by Europeans uh, and then into the modern landscape, like they kind of learned the settlers kind of learned, you know? So we put together this, this document sort of scrounging through every historical record we could think of, of any mention of fire in, you know, settlers' letters or journals or books or, you know, diaries or whatever. And we tried to tease as much information as we could from that. And it was really obvious the trends you'd get. Initially, the, it would be like, you know, French trappers or explorers or um, hunters, you know, sort of 
writing down notes about what they saw and primarily in the Native, Native American use of fire. And it, they were just in awe. It was like they, they thought it was the most beautiful, incredible scene they've ever seen where you'd see the prairies and the woodlands just glowing and like a, just magical, you know, this, like a, an ocean of fire and flames or whatever. And they just thought it was interesting. And they would talk about how every fall, the entire countryside was ablaze and there would be a, a haze of smoke and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And it was just every single account was that exact thing over and over and over. Wow. It was just so much a part of the landscape and the lifestyle of the Native Americans with their hunting parties and their, you know, this and managing the landscape with the And the original, you know, Europeans to see it were like, they were in awe and they thought it was incredible. And then once you had sort of the European settler com component where people would be, you know, coming out West, starting to set up their homesteads or whatever, the accounts were so not in awe and it was absolute <laughs> horror. Wow. They were so horrified. Every single one of their accounts is like just this language that you can't believe. It's like blood curdling. Like <laughs> I'm so afraid that our, our farm was burned. Our house was burned. Our horses were burned. People were burned, you know? Wow. And then eventually they sort of got the bug and they sort of learned you know, potentially from Native Americans, they learned how to use fire, you know, they there would still be all kinds of escapes, right? Because, you know, for whatever reason, you you'd lose the fire often, and it would, it, the landscape wasn't like ours. If you if you lost the fire back then, you know, it's gonna burn for 500 miles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it doesn't burn out in an acre when it hits the next cornfield. Right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> right. Right. So, you know, yeah, if everybody's using fire to, to, to burn their home, to heat their home or to, you know, do whatever, there's going to be a lot of escaping, whatever. So there was still some scariness, let's say around, there was a lot of fire out there still being used from like 1830 to 1850 in my part of the Midwest. Um, a lot of it was escapes, but they were starting to use it. Okay, I'm going to mm. burn off my crop so that I can plow it more easily or I can get my planting in. I'm going to burn off my hay field to increase some productivity and re you know, release some, some nutrients to the soil. I'm going to burn out my cattle pasture or my woodlot just so that I can get more grass in the understory. I'm going to put in a fire break here around my house. You know, I'm sick of these, you know, snakes. <laughs> <laughs> these damn snakes. Yeah. So it changed and eventually... Like they got good at it. They were still burning into the 19th century, you know, oh, wow. up into the Smoky Mountain era. People were burning a lot. There was a real culture of fire, but it was, you know, if in my little lot here, I want to use fire as a tool and they learned how to use it and, right. you know, sort of responsibly. It's really interesting to me. There was a paper that came out about 10 years ago and it was using MODIS satellite technology, which I don't understand. Yeah. I don't know anything about it, but they basically, Sounds what cool. they basically, yeah, yeah. Some satellite in the computer space world. Algorithms. Right. <laughs> they would, you know, they, the satellites flying over and every time they spotted a fire in North America, they'd be able to pinpoint it and mark it down. And so it was like a 10, 10 year dot map of every landscape sort of ish fire across North America. And you see these incredibly clear patterns, places that light up today that are still being burned mm. regularly. And it's very much a cultural thing. Hmm. In the Ozark Mountains, those mountains are being burned constantly. Then the Forest Service went back and interviewed every fire, escape fire that they could find and every land manager they could find. They said, what caused this fire? What, what, what's that fire? And it was cultural, all cultural. It's like, uh, I just, I just, my, I learned how to burn my, my back 40 acres for my grandfather and I've been doing it forever. Huh. 
or the number one source was arson and feud. I had a feud with this guy. And so I lit his, I lit his pasture on fire. I swear to God, this was the number one source of fire in, in, in the forest service wow, region. Mark. Beef. <laughs> yeah. That's not a joke. That is literally, a, I couldn't believe it when I read it. It was like wow. 70% for a, you know, a given year of fires like that. And then when you look at like, the other places that tend to lit up would be like the northern Great Plains with the wheat wheat fields, and that was very much mm. an agricultural burn off the stubble, easier to plant and to plow in the future. And you know, I'm not worried about it escaping because it's an agricultural landscape. Or in the in the Flint Hills of Kansas, it's like I'm going to burn my cattle pasture because I you know I want to do this that and this. And you know, to some extent in the southeast, you know, there's still some kind of a history or yeah. a cultural legacy of fire. So it's it's it, you know it's interesting to me. Like we. A lot of people like us who live in cities, you know, we don't have that perspective of like, what, you know, I don't, what do you talk, but a lot of rural folk, like if you're a hunter, if you're a, a fisherman, you know, you got a little acreage, like there's way more of a culture of it and, uh, and they have a better relationship with, you know, with these yeah. types of things. Oh, that's interesting. You brought that up because I'm thinking now back to like my childhood and my uncle, they lived in New Jersey and he would go over and, and burn his lawn. And he's, I, I remember being like, <laughs> what are you doing? And it was one of those things. He's like, ah, the grass is just healthier that way. And I just boot out of mine. Oh yeah. Okay. Whatever. But it, it's so interesting to hear that perspective over time because yeah, if you grew up again in the Northeast, like I did, you don't think about this as a regular thing because no one's going out and doing it. Or if there's a fire set and it gets away, that's a big deal. I mean, that is like local news channels are coming out for that kind of stuff. So it, it, it rings true when you hear the cultural elements that kind of drive or don't drive it. But backing up a little bit to like what motivated this, this search, because I mean, this is a huge can of worms to try to open and, and really get a good grasp on. So what a made you pursue it and B, how did you even start to define the scope of sort of how far you want to kind of look and, and how far back you want to go with, with fire history? Yeah. So the last study I was involved in, I have to say, was originated by my colleague, Bill McLean, who is just a cool guy, like a really old school, like sort of meat and potatoes. Uh, <laughs> he's almost like a historian. He just loves to lock himself in some weird archival room for days and days with with no clear goal of reaping the benefits of this work, you know, <laughs> like just saying, I'm curious and I want to know more about the settlement and the, and the and the Native Americans fire, and I'm just going to see what's out there. So he actually had been for 20 years, probably oh, wow. re a retired botanist and going through these archival materials, like I said, going back as far as he could get 1600s, it was as many written records and accounts as he could find to just sort of create a bibliography of as much information hmm. about fire in a part of the world where we, we basically did not know very much about what was happening firewise. Like you said, you mentioned earlier, we had these sort of weird anecdotes, but it was less of a, like as, as settlement happened by Europeans further uh, east to west, we actually have a really good record of Native American fire use hmm. when you get out to the west, because by then people were writing down these, uh, you know, uh, anthropogenic account, Native American accounts, uh, ethnic you know, historians were writing down everything they heard and they wanted to hear how, you know, we're using fire and what they were doing. And there was, there was a real interest in documenting these, these tribes, what they were doing. But when it came through our part of the country, like that hadn't, that culture wasn't as established. So we just didn't know. We had these paintings and anecdotes about, you know, hmm. what was happening with fire. So Bill McLean, my colleague, like he just spent years trying to piece together as many of these letters and journals and stuff like that as he could. And he just sucked out a lot of information for our part of the world. 
And, you know, we just sort of summarized it and tried to, to get a, as a comprehensive picture of what we could find about what was happening pre-settlement with fire in, in, in the, you know, the Midwestern prairie region. Yeah. So it was, it was more or less the Midwestern tall grass prairie region, which is interesting to me because I'm going to back up and do another yeah, yeah. tangent here for a second. Was There are a lot of fancy scientists in the Forest Service and whoever in academia who are trying to put together these maps, these predictive maps of what the pre-settlement fire regime, fire frequency, fire intensity is for the United States. And they built their models on a bunch of variables. One of the variables, the strongest variables they found were, were number one, climate, which you don't is not surprising, like mm. how hot is the area? How often is it dry? Sure. The number two variable is human density hmm. come pre-settlement time. So how, how many Native Americans or just people generally were there from you know 1500 to 1850 in these areas? And it turns out the Southeast had probably Florida and Alabama and all that had the, probably the highest... Hmm that in the west coast of california so that variable that's climate human density and i'm blanking on the third variable anyway so then they use that to predict you know what you know what the vegetation type was prehistorically and how often it burned but then you would look at the the prairie region of the country and it was weird to me it was like these are like really fancy proceedings in national academy of science papers and science paper and they have the entire sort of midwestern prairies like every 30 years, you know, fire or something like that. And I was like, what? Uh, if you had a prairie that didn't burn for 30 years, you don't have a prairie anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean? You have, you have a juniper a... forest. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I'm like, well, how are these scientists putting it together? So I went back and looked at it and what they were using to confirm their model of climate and, and human density was basically tree ring data. Oh. So they would go to the tree ring data and say, oh, that tree ring of fire frequency record matches what we get from our model. So that's, that's how we're going to predict, you know, based, based on these tree rings. But if you look at the Midwest and the grasslands, the tree ring model is almost, you know, there's a couple really, really rare studies, right, where there's a little forest blotch or whatever, but you, we don't have good estimates based yeah. on that. And so part of the reason I was so excited about this was like, well, that's wrong. And we, we have, you know, the data to show that that pre-settlement fire frequency is way more frequent than these, these models are coming up with, right? These yeah. big fancy computer simulations. Uh, so that was really fun. Um, wow. To be able to sort of put some heat be behind the message that we sort of already, uh, you know, guessed. Wow. That's a, that's a really neat look under the hood of your thought process there. And it, it's, it's almost like, how the hell did you get that published in such a big journal with, yeah. with such a loose sort of, I mean, I get where it would work in a forested region, right? The Southeast has a bit more of a forest ecosystem sort of inherent in it. But yeah, the Midwest, if you get a patch of trees, who's to say that you have enough resolution in those trees when we started finally looking at them to say anything about what's going on in a grassland? And I mean, again, you talk to any land manager in the Midwest you know, call up Bill Handel, buddy Bill, uh, and ask him what happens if you don't burn every five years at least. You know, there's just these inherent things that you're going, that makes absolutely no sense, which I think speaks to the benefit of you being a botanist in the field just as much as you are in the lab, in the literature, because you start to see where these people that, I'm going to say this with uh, the knowing I'm getting some angry emails here, is that just don't go out enough. Do not spend enough time in nature to know when their models are kind of silly. <laughs> you know what I mean? So kudos to you for combining your skill sets to notice this gap and, and recognize where the strengths of, of kind of moving forward on this to, to you know resolve something a little bit more 
realistic was was needed and and doable. Yeah, I mean that being said, you know they were working with the data they had. No, totally, uh, I get and it. the maps the maps are really neat. I mean they yeah. really are cool. They show you like in really nice detail. Oh, I forgot what the third variable is. The it was you know temperature, average mean temperature, historic human abundance, and um precipitation which no, is just yeah. basically will set will tell you okay you're gonna have this much of a fuel load right. basically you know and right. whatever so and yeah, i recognize so, that i recognize they're working with what they got but this is the right. another call out and i'm a parrot with this idea is go outside get data in the field like you you can only fall back on models so much right and yeah and they were you you know then these these maps were being picked up by people as you know this is the gospel and you're like whoa whoa slow down you know let's yeah like you said there are people who actually know more about this anyway yeah so yeah it was it's a really fun project and i gotta shout out bill mclean again this retired botanist and like just the quotes that he came he found <laughs> were just like they're just i mean if you if you go back and if y'all want to go back and read this paper like it is just so much fun to hear what the heck was happening out there on the landscape it was so interesting yeah it's really rad and i mean i'm we're buddies right and i know you and like i really respect the work you do but even if i didn't know all of all this about you i don't think i would balk at saying this is a really amazing paper that takes a lot of interesting historical social sciences and combines it with hard ecology uh, to almost show you uh, sort of a, I, I hesitate to say prescription for what the landscape should be in this region, but it gives you a better idea of what was going on and what you sort of moving forward, what we can kind of think about in terms of how these ecosystems change and, and are influenced by our actions. But as someone who's done the research and literature reviews and, and spent hours agonizing over data, how do you take quotes and letters and all of these very anecdotal sort of data points, so to speak, and turn them into data that's usable in this context. I mean, what was that process like for you? Was it a learning curve or was it something that's kind of like, oh no, we'll just kind of code it as X, Y, and Z and, and go from there? Well, here's another familiar uh, pet peeve of yours and mine <laughs> with research is that you're probably not going to go into it thinking I'm going to spend 20 years in a library or I'm going to get tenure or I'm going to get a grant based on this. So you have to have some patience and flexibility, you know, uh, sure. which the modern research world will not allow you for, you know, uh, type of thing. But turning that into data in this, in this particular thing was like, it was kind of question driven based on a lot of, a couple of debates that were happening with our modern sort of management world. Mm. Um, specifically, I can talk about like, when is the best time of the year to burn? Uh, when did things burn historically? And one of the most tangible uh, results we said is that the burn season historically was October and November in huh. our part of the world. When after first freeze, you killed back the annuals, you know, the vegetation dried out and you get a little dry period. And that's primarily when burns. So you can talk all you want about late summer burns <laughs> in this part of the world or spring burns. They probably did happen, but they were probably much much rarer and much smaller in scale, hmm. most likely. So there are a couple of small things like that. Okay, where do we have, we threw out actually a lot of the accounts we, we got because they didn't have sort of a tangible variables that we could use. Mm. What time of the year was it? You know, what direction was the wind blowing? Where was the fire in the country? Uh, what day of the year was it? How big of an area did burn? Like, was it just, you know, small or was it a huge area? So we sort of like said, okay, let's take those data points and try to make something interesting and useful uh, out of those. 
um, lightning. What was the cause? Who, what you know? So that was another mm, big thing. Like yeah. you know, you saw a clear trend going from this is exclusively Native American fire for hunting. Then it became Native American fire for I got a bunch of white people on my trail tracking me in the military, and I'm literally burning to cover up my tracks wow. so they can't track me. You know, That's or I. Yeah, yeah, right. Jesus. Or like I'm trying to actually keep these Europeans out of here and I'm burning because I know they freak out by fire and we know how to manage fire. We know how to deal with fire, right? Huh. And then it, it it turned into the source was, you know, the, all the things we talked about, Europeans escaping from their campsite or something like that, or, is, you know, our, it burned over our fire line. And then it became really, really huge source was locomotives, like when those... Mm you know, steam powered coal locomotives were going through their, you know, little spark and then boom, you know? So that was kind of a fun thing to be able to track that data and say, what was the source uh, of, of fires too? Wow. I mean, you're catching succession in a lot of different ways, culturally, historically, uh, you know, actual ecologically, so to speak. And, and I'm sure landscape context plays a big role in this. And so did you have to kind of also factor in how much the landscape was changing because of European settlement uh, in the context of like, you know, like you said, when you light a fire today, it goes two acres and then it peters out when it hits an industrial cornfield. But historically that could have raged on for thousands of acres. Yeah, that's a great question. And we, d- we weren't able to fact that at, that into the fire necessarily, you know, sure. what was happening in real time. But it became apparent in some of the quotes, like you could just, you could just tell, you know, you're talking about grass fires and then you're talking about, you know, wheat stubble Mm. or, you know, people talking about, well, I just planted these acres of cool season grasses, poa and brome around my house to keep the fires away, you know, as much as I can. Um, But then they would talk about this came up over and over and over again was they were shocked. They're like, this was a prairie landscape I looked out at. And when it stopped burning, I mean, it was like. 20 years and it was four, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they were amazed. Yeah. They couldn't believe it. Like yeah. they're like, oh my God, what just happened? <laughs> so it was ongoing and fast how quickly that landscape can change with it's such a dynamic system out there, wow. you know? To me, that's kind of an unexpected benefit to looking into this in that context. It's like you go looking for records of fire, but you're also getting these ideas of what happens when fire is removed. And going back to what you said about the models where they were predicting 30 years, I mean, here is firsthand accounts of how quickly the landscape changed as soon as you remove that disturbance regime from it and and what it goes to, which again, if you're a land manager working in these areas, you know how quickly that can be overrun. And even within a forested community, I think of, you know, you go and see something in Southern Illinois where there's these nice oak hickory forests with an open understory. And then you kind of come up into central Illinois where, you know, a little bit more human settlement, a little bit more human activity, a little less uh, apt to put the fire and it just becomes this dense thicket of maples and hackberries. Yep. And that was really surprising how consistently these people talked about it. And the Native Americans were managing that that vegetation, you know, for plum thickets and, you know, all mm. these different fruit crops and all these different things. So, yeah, there was a lot of that, you know, they would they would want to to know where they were in the vegetation success and spectrum. One thing that we couldn't get into is because we could only go back, you know, so far to 1600 was, you know, I'm a, I know very little about Native American history and cultures, and but you know people talk about these huge mound building settlements like the Cahokia mounds, and there's others all across in Louisiana, huge at a scale that we we do not think of Native Americans populating these areas, 
and huge agricultural and trading systems. And I'm sure there was a difference between back then. And then the, you know, when those civilizations sort of probably broke apart because of contact with Europeans and the epidemics that associated with that, I'm sure that changed the fire regimes and the hunting regimes and stuff like that. So what were, what would they have been like even before, you know, the, the current area? So there's a lot more to learn at. I mean, yeah, I mean, this is just, I mean, it's good, good science, right? It is it opens up so many new questions that you probably didn't think of before. It didn't have the right context to frame them before. But, you know, this is something I, I also say a lot on this podcast is this idea that when you talk to modern folk, uh, Western folk about sort of habitat management, getting involved in sort of herbivore abundance, like overabundance of deer and stuff like that, they're like, well, that's a human problem. And, and if humans weren't here, this wouldn't be the... Dude, humans have been here for so long. And whether we know it or not, research like yours and others hints at the fact that the human influence on the landscape has been large, it's been extensive, and it's been part of these ecosystems for millennia. I mean, you you talk about what we know in recorded Native American history, and then you think of all the pre-recorded history that has happened on this continent alone, let alone everywhere else. And you start to realize that like, oh yeah, we're also part of this. And and the idea that we need to get involved is not this, oh my God, look at how much we messed up. It's like, no, we've always been involved and we just need to think about how to do it in a way that doesn't completely destroy the landscape that we rely on to survive. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. It just bring, it brings up even more questions like the human impacts, right? With the first Native Americans in North America of, you know, the Pleistocene giant mammals, you know what I mean? Like, you could argue that before human contact with North America, you know, you basically had the Serengeti of North America, mm-hmm. you know, abundances and diversity of mammals that probably looked like Africa, you know, the African. Right, right. Right. And so in those contexts, you probably had a lot more lightning fire and less, you know, human fire. But there were so many more mammals and much larger mammals <laughs> right. that those were probably the things that were keeping a lot of those grasslands and forests, you know, open. So you maybe even had a shift from primarily herbivore and grazer, massive animals in huge abundances to less of them, more human fire, keeping those habitats as they are. Yeah. So I think, yeah, it's it's cool stuff, man. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) it is. It's wild. And I love, there's nothing I love more than like sitting down and thinking deep time like that. I mean, 10,000 years versus 300 million, whatever, choose your battle. None of us can comprehend that amount of time, but it just goes to show you that there's never been a point in this world where you could say, let's return to that. And it really frustrates me when you see these conversations raging online among non-ecologists, non-habitat managers that are like, all these people just want to go back to what it was before. I'm like, no, no one worth their weight in anything (laughs) in terms of land management thinks that's a possible, let alone a realistic goal. That's like a 40 year out of date mentality that we just don't think of anymore. And it it sucks to hear these like, again, non-nuanced, oversimplified views of what restoration and ecological management really are. And, And, you know, I think research like what you've published here with your colleagues is just proof of how much we still have yet to learn, but also gain from this sort of knowledge in terms of our relationship and stewardship of nature around us. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> you know, when you think about what you've accomplished with this, I mean, I, I we were talking before I hit the record button here of just, you know, this has actually gained some traction. I've seen this shared among a lot of different outlets and stuff like that. And, and from the communication standpoint, this is the kind of work that needs to be taught. I mean, all work needs to be talked about, but this is the kind of stuff that really kind of puts us into context 
with the rest of the world around us. Uh, you know, how has the response been to all of this and, and what have you learned even after publishing this and getting it out to the world? Um, you know, like all research, it takes a little while <laughs> to get out there. <laughs> um, you know, it's primarily with random feedback I get from people, you know, they'll, they'll say, Hey, I saw your paper. Have you seen this before? You've seen that before, you know, this is really cool. I'd love, I'd love to hear about what you think about my neck of the woods. You know, what, what was there some fires that we saw around here that were particularly noteworthy. So that's a lot of the, the interest that they're, that, that I've seen. Yeah. Fun. <laughs> so yeah, now you have to do the same thing uh, in every <laughs> physiographic region in North America. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm. I, it makes me happy when people are interested in this stuff. You know. Yeah, and that's the other side of it too. Is stuff like this gets communicated because it is kind of a, a shocking moment and something a lot of people can relate to in different ways. But when you think about your career as both a botanist and uh, you know a publishing scientist that spends a lot of time in front of a word document or an r script um, you know these moments have to feel pretty darn good because you know we can talk about academia and its downfalls all we want but a major downfall is the sort of for many years uh, low emphasis on communicating the science that you've just spent so many damn hours doing yeah it you know it it never ceases to amaze me where i'll be in the room with some of these researchers and these some of these academics or whatever and you know matt you're like me you're a, you're a you're a pretty intelligent guy but oh, thanks. you're in the you're in the room with some of these people and you're just like their brains are working at absolute <laughs> warp speed and i can't even keep up with how smart some of these people are yeah it's a overwhelming it is it's shocking how you know uh but at the same time, it's so frustrating because you're like, you're missing a lot of this here because nobody, you know, some of these questions are really, they're not leaving this little bubble, uh, you know, and uh, yeah, so it can be very frustrating to see people who are so smart yet, you know, not really looking at the world and saying, hey, we've got problems and we've got issues that that need some uh need some traction, you know? (laughs) I mean, if you can sum up my experiences over the last decade in academia, it's, there's a lot of very intelligent people that are woefully out of touch. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tough. And, and again, I realize that the pressures of being in an academic institution don't always sort of reward the what you should do it's it's what they need to you know make their bottom line and support all of the administrators that colleges feel the need to hire i digress again but you know thinking about this from the need to think about application and how do we manage or or, and deal with the landscape better i could see where this could become you know the nuance would get rubbed off of this and people would say well here is the fire return interval we need and this is exactly when we need to burn so what do you think in terms of again your field botanist skills knowing who you know in terms of habitat managers and the ecological science that you do you know is this a prescriptive sort of idea of this is when we should be doing it and how often we should be doing it or is it uh, more of an instance of like it's okay to do those summer burns it's okay to do the spring burns and it's all a, a sort of habitat and goal-based, where do you want to be at sort of situation? Yeah, I, I would say the, the latter part. I, I don't think a lot of this, this sort of background, almost understanding of historic fire regimes necessarily fundamentally changes how we approach mm. a lot of this work that we're doing. You know, when people ask questions like, well, how often should I be burning my small little natural area? And I am not advocating, you know, that we we burn our, you know, you got a little nature preserve or something like that. I'm not advocating you burn it every two years. 
you know, uh, I think that the the old sort of rules of people who know what they're doing here, I think they still apply where, you know, on a lot of our smaller fragmented natural areas, you burn just enough to keep that vegetation structure, you know, mm. that that is your kind of your target goal. In many cases, that's probably more frequent than than we're doing. But if it's a if, if it's a new restoration, that's probably going to be even more frequent because you're really trying to establish the plants there and you know that you want. And as a general rule, a lot of your drier areas or your poor soils don't need to be burned as often as some of your wetter areas that you want to maintain. Mm. And you know, you got to shout out to some of the animals and the insects out there where <laughs> you as 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 much as possible you. You want to try and not burn your whole natural area. You want to leave some little refuges where your insects or your butterflies can have a little place to recover for a year or two or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and then you got to pay attention. If you've got particularly rare and dangerous species at your site, you obviously have to pay attention to what their <laughs> needs are. You'd hope. And you have to pay attention to your non-native exotic species, you know, like, are they increasing or are they decreasing? Is that, you know, so the, a lot of this stuff is kind of obvious, but it's a... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a what do they call that adaptive management you adapt yeah, you to, to what you see right right and and i'm i'm really you spelled it out really nicely there and it is it comes down to human value systems what are you what are your desired state what are your goals here and i think what your research has done here with your colleagues has illustrated just how much this has been a human value system. Science can inform these value systems, but we make the decisions at the end of the day. And and what's amazing is that your research has uncovered that even prior to European settlement, the reasons for burning have changed. Was it to manage for hunting and game? And then was it to keep people off my trail and to scare off the the you know the colonial influence? And then it becomes you know, is it an awe with a sense of wonder and beauty or am I trying to harvest things? You know, the, every step of the way, this has been a human value system and people have burned for different reasons. And so that's where it comes down to what you just outlined. What are your goals? What are you trying to do with it all? Yep. And I hope if, if there's one thing we can take is maybe that historical cultural appreciation of that, you know, this is a part of who we are as, you know, Americans and let's, you know, Let's think about it. Let's celebrate it. And, you know, let's, let's do it as best we can, as you said, for what makes everybody happy and wealthy and wise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> totally. No, that's a, that's a great point. And so with that in mind, Dr. Spireus, if people want to find out more about your work, maybe read this paper or some of the articles that have been sort of spawned from it, where do you recommend they go looking to find out more about you and, and the work you and your colleagues put out? They can go to my website, which is at the Illinois Natural History Survey, and you just Google my name, Greg Spireas, S-P-Y-R-E-A-S, or you can email me directly if you have specific questions. More and more, we are putting our research papers out into the public realm. So even if you don't have like a, you know, a library uh, access or something, you can just download them off our website or off the, the journal's website, and you can Google them and you go to Matt's websites and uh, find links to them. So yeah. Excellent. And of course, as always, I will put up those links so people don't have to remember what we just talked about or write it down while they're driving or showering. Uh, but yeah, Greg, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us and for putting in the effort. This is, I know you did it in tandem with others, but monumental work, very important work. And uh, I think ecology is better because of it. So thank you very much for your time and for the effort you put in both as a field botanist and uh, an ecologist. Uh, thanks, man. I appreciate it. And the exact same thing to do you, this work you're doing with, with the pod and with the website are just, they're just awesome. And I love it. There are so few good science podcasts out there and I think you're, you're just killing it. Thanks. Uh, 
All right. Well, hang in there. Stay healthy. And uh, yeah, just uh, keep botanizing. All right. You too, man. <laughs> All right. That is it for this conversation. I thank Dr. Spirea so much for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us. And I mean it. That man has a very busy schedule. But he's doing amazing work, and I really recommend you go check out his website and take a stab at reading this paper. It is so interesting to look back at all of the work that was done to try to understand historic fire regimes. And of course, all of the questions that this brings up. It's great science, and I can't thank him enough for telling us about it today. But that is it for me this week. I hope you're all enjoying yourselves. You're relaxing a bit. Of course, if you want to support this podcast, check out our Patreon. Go buy my book or pick up some merch. All of the links to that and more can be found in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. But until next week, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.